Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. So follows upon us, and all of those of you who are high school seniors, if you have not started your applications yet, you should definitely do so now. All right, so on to today. For my second segment, I'll be talking with Abigail Anderson, veteran of Reed College's Office of Admission and member of the College Coach Team. As our in-house coalition application expert, we brought her here to give us an update and discuss who should use that particular application. For my third segment, I'll be talking with Zaragoza Guerra, longtime College Coach Consultant and former Admission Officer at MIT and Caltech, about study abroad, what kinds there are, and how to research the kinds that might be available to you. But first, I'll be talking with Michelle Richardson, current College Coach Finance Consultant, formerly of both Chase Student Loans and Sally May, as well as Financial Aid Officer at the Mayo School of Medicine. She and I will be reviewing how to complete the FAFSA, or the free application for federal student aid, which is very timely for you seniors in high school as well. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you, Sally. All right. So I don't think that everybody knows what the FAFSA is. So why don't you? Why don't we start with you explaining it? Sure. So the FAFSA is an acronym that is referred to the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. And it's the main financial aid application that families need to complete in order to be considered for any need-based types of financial aid, whether that comes from the federal government, the state government, or the college itself. And basically, all colleges use the FAFSA to determine financial aid eligibility, um, and it is the universal application. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how does a family complete the FAFSA, and is there a deadline um, to complete it by? Sure. Um, Families will complete the FAFSA online uh, via fafsa.ed.gov. The FAFSA becomes available October 1st, so actually in less than a week. For the families who have a student attending college for the upcoming collegiate academic year, the 2019-2020 academic year. And, you know, the the deadline is um, a a long time from now, but we really want to encourage families to complete the FAFSA by the end of October at least to ensure that they meet any priority deadlines that are... are occurring at various colleges, and uh, it's always good to not assume that colleges all have the same financial aid application deadlines or process, and so we highly encourage families to complete the FAFSA early and um, verify if the college does have a specific deadline. Mm -hmm. I want to call out something that you said here that I think is really important, which is that 
the web address is fafsa.ed.gov. And I mention that because I've seen fafsa.com and I think uh, that website is kind of a, a con to try and get money out of people for something they don't have to pay for. Is that correct? That's, yes, that is exactly correct. And they actually took that site down. Uh, mm-hmm. So if families are to search for FAFSA, um, this fafsa.ed.gov is the URL that will uh, come into play. Okay. All right. Great. Um, Okay, so what information is asked for? What do families need to know to complete the FAFSA? Um, Yep, great question. So the FAFSA will ask for both student and parent demographic and financial information. And so it's helpful for families to have the Social Security numbers, date of births, and valid email addresses for both the student and the parents. Um, handy and available when they before they begin to complete the FAFSA. Um, the FAFSA is a student application, so students and parents really need to ensure that they are putting in the correct data, whether it's in the student section or in the parent section, for the appropriate person. That's one of the biggest uh, uh, mistakes that families uh, make. Um, And from a financial perspective, the FAFSA is going to ask for student and parent federal income tax information, and they actually ask for the tax information from two years prior to the beginning of the college academic year. So for any students who are beginning college next fall in 2019, Uh, you will complete the FAFSA after October 1st in 2018, and the student and the parent will be reporting and using their 2017 federal uh, tax information. And um, along with that federal tax information, students also and parents will need to report the current balance in their checking and savings accounts, and report certain types of assets and uh, non-retirement investments. And so another uh, tip is for families to have recent bank and investment statements available as well um, while they're completing the FAFSA. And in regards to the federal tax information, the Department of Education and the IRS have worked together to streamline that process, and some families may have the ability to retrieve their 2017 federal income tax information via the IRS data retrieval tool. And so when a family is online completing the FAFSA, it will actually ask them and give them an option if they want to go to the IRS website and have their tax information automatically populated on the FAFSA. So it does save the families some data entry um, and some uh, ability to perhaps make a, a mistake um, and key in uh, a number incorrectly. Um, one suggestion I have is to have the parents and the students ensure that they actually have their paper 2017 tax forms available as well. and. The big reason for that is in order to securely go to the IRS website, they ask for 
the exact address that is on the federal income tax return. So uh, families need to be very careful that if they live on a street and their tax return spells out the word street, that they spell it that way and they don't use an abbreviation like capital S, small t. Um, it's very particular when it comes to that. And um, families that cannot use the IRS data retrieval tool include parents who are married but they filed their taxes separately, or if there was a change in marital status um, during that tax year with the family, or if the family uh, has an amended tax return, uh, those individuals are not going to be able to use the IRS data retrieval tool. So they'll have to use their 2017 paper tax information and key in the information on the FAFSA. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So you mentioned that both student and parent information is needed on the FAFSA. What about different family uh, situations, such as divorced and separated parents, you know, and how does that come into play when they're um, completing the FAFSA? Um, If the biological parents of the student are married or maybe they're not married but they're living together, both parents' information would be reported on the FAFSA. Now, in a situation where the biological biological parents are separated, divorced, or maybe they've never been married or and they're not living together, the custodial parent then is the parent who will put their information on the FAFSA. And a custodial parent is defined by the parent who the student has lived with the most in the past 12 months. And so... Um, Sometimes when we are talking with families, families will tell us that the students have basically split their time equally between the parents in these situations. So um, the custodial parent then in that situation is then determined by the parent who financially supported the student the most in the previous 12 months. And then that parent would be defined as the custodial parent, and their information would be included on the FAFSA. And um, if that custodial parent is remarried, then both the parent and the step-parent's information would be reported on the FAFSA. And... um, One uh, question we often get in regards to this is, doesn't the parent who actually claimed the student on the federal tax return, isn't that the parent that needs to complete the FAFSA? And actually, the short answer to that is no, they are are unrelated. Um, So for federal financial aid purposes and completing the FAFSA, the custodial parent is the parent's information that would be inputted on the financial aid application. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that's good information. I imagine that's confusing to a lot of people. So It is. All right. Yeah, yes. yeah. How, how do colleges receive the information submitted on the FAFSA? Yep, so um, the student and family's information, once they complete the FAFSA is sent off and electronically processed by a central processing center, and then the data is sent to the colleges from there. 
So the FAFSA at the end of the application basically gives the student the ability to list up to 10 colleges that they want their FAFSA information sent to. And um, if a student is applying to more than 10 colleges, um, they would submit their FAFSA with the first 10 colleges wait until they get their student aid report back in about two business days, which is actually the confirmation that the schools who um, received the FAFSA information actually have it. And then the student can log back into the FAFSA and add any additional schools. So it's all done uh, electronically. Uh, most families uh, typically... Um, the ability to send the information up to 10 colleges at one time is very handy and usually um, allows the families to have enough opportunity to send it once. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I personally don't actually recommend that students apply to more than 10 colleges, although I think 11 or 12 sure. are pretty reasonable too. So. Um. <laughs> Yeah. Um, all right. So we just have like two minutes left. So are there any other suggestions that you would like to share to our audience regarding completing the FAFSA? Yeah, sure. Just a, a couple other uh, maybe tips and suggestions. They actually just um, will be introducing an, a FAFSA app. So um, it will not be available until October 1st, so families can actually complete and access their FAFSA via an app, so they can watch for that. Um, one tip, too, if families have more than one co uh, college student um, or child in their family attending college in the same academic year, they are asked. Uh, one question at the end of the FAFSA that asks if they want their parent data transferred to another FAFSA um, for a sibling. So um, it's really handy if families keep that browser open and um, goes through and allows that transfer of data. It can really save some steps. Um, but they only give you one opportunity to do that. And um, also, uh, when families log in in October or next week to complete the FAFSA, there's going to be two separate FAFSAs available, one for the current academic year, which is 2018-19, and then next year for 2019-2020. So they really need to make sure that they're completing the correct FAFSA. And uh, families need to also uh, be aware that you complete the FAFSA every year that you're applying for financial aid. So for a typical, traditional four-year uh, undergrad student, you will be completing the FAFSA uh, for four years, not once. And um, we have a lot of tips on completing the FAFSA via a video series on our Facebook page. So families are more than welcome to go out to Facebook and see those uh, tips regarding completing the FAFSA and, you know, ask for help. We are here to, to help families walk through that process if they have any questions. Mm -hmm. Oh, that sounds great. Thanks so much for giving all this uh, wonderful, very important information to our listeners, Michelle. Oh, you are very welcome. Thanks so much for having me on the show. All right, we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, Abigail Anderson and I will be discussing the coalition application.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before, our break. Now we'll be speaking with Abigail Anderson about the coalition application. Hi, Abigail. How are you doing today? I'm great, Sally. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. And I very much appreciate you being here because while I know the common application backwards and forwards, I do not know the coalition application as well, <laughs> to put it mildly, although I have been on it and I have worked with it, uh, worked on it with a student. So, but let's start. Not everybody, some people will know what the coalition application is, but I think a lot of people won't. So what is, why don't you tell us what the coalition application is? Yeah, for sure. And I understand your hesitation or slight discomfort with it. The coalition is such a new platform that it's, taking us all by storm. You know, we're not all super comfortable with it yet. So the coalition was founded, I think, back in only 2015. So it's barely three years old. And it's basically the main competitor to the Common App. Um, It is also a kind of application platform that a diverse group of colleges have decided to start accepting Um, The coalition also, like the Common App, does happen to be a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to increasing access to the college application process and to higher ed. Um, So they kind of, just like the Common App, have two arms of their work. They provide this platform for applying to colleges that various colleges and universities around the country can use, and they're also trying to work with students to help them access 
higher ed in general. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's good to hear. Um, so who who should be using the coalition application then? Like, who is it? Yeah, who's it geared towards? Which colleges use it? That kind of thing. That's a very good question. So really, I mean, there are only about 140 colleges that accept the coalition application at this point in time. We have seen that number grow significantly each year. You know, it's pretty much doubling every single year. So I wouldn't be surprised next year if that number was well over 200. Um, And within the group of about 140 that are accepting it this year, five are exclusively using the coalition application. So that means it is the only application form that these five schools will accept. They don't take the common app. They don't take an institutional application. So, so what, if you're yeah, a student what's, or you're yeah, sorry, go, the parent of a student who's applying to the University of Florida, the University of Maryland, Virginia Tech, or either the Bothell or Seattle University of Washington campuses, you're going to have to use the coalition application. There's no way around it um, because those are the five schools that are accepting it. Mm -hmm. I personally, with the students I'm working with, am recommending that they use the common application wherever possible, kind of just for the very reason that you started this segment off with, Sally. I think it's a newer platform, and from what I've heard from my friends who are still in college admissions, even application readers at schools that accept the coalition application are feeling a little less comfortable with it just because the Common App has been kind of the vanguard, the kind of staple application used for so long. Um, So if I have a student who has to submit the Coalition App to one school, say they're applying to University of Maryland, I have them submit the Coalition App there. But if they're applying to multiple schools that use the Common App, I'm going to recommend that they use the Common App wherever possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know about you, Sally. I know you said you have an account, but um, each year the Coalition App is getting more and more user-friendly. But I still prefer the Common App platform and website. Yeah, well, I should clarify because I, I, I used it last year. So I guess I still have an account. Uh, luckily for me, none of my students this year are applying to any of the colleges on the coalition application. So, um, so I haven't, I haven't had to kind of break it out this year, but last year it was, it was a stressful experience for me just because like I said, I'm so used to the common app and I had to figure things out, you know, as I went along. Um, so I think one of the Oh, I was just going to say, I think one of the biggest frustrations with the coalition app that people should be aware of before they start working on it is that unlike in the common app where you can bounce around from section to section and see the different school-specific supplemental essay questions before you perhaps work on the member questions about your intended major or what term you plan to enroll in, in the coalition app, you actually have to go one by one. So you have to answer 
a lot of questions before you can ever get to the supplement. And that's really frustrating. I know personally for me, I just want to know what the questions are. But I know it's been really frustrating for a few of my students who are applying to UW where they, they have to submit this application. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I had a call the other day with a family that said, no, no, this school, I can't remember which school it was, doesn't have an essay. And I knew that that school had an essay. So I said, you need to keep going. <laughs> I'm really sure that there is an essay for this college. So, yeah. Well, hopefully it'll get less totally. confusing. Yeah. So yeah, what maybe about the main... from the coalition is listening to us. Oh, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe so. Um, so what about the main essay? Um, you know, does it function in the same manner as the common application? Yes and no. I mean, so there are so many similarities between the two platforms. The coalition's main essay is similar to the common app in that there is one main essay and there is a set of prompts that schools using the coalition app are asking a student to respond to. Um, just like the common app has seven, I think the coalition app has five different prompts and you have to pick one. Uh, just like the common app, not all schools require a student to submit that main essay. So it is totally possible to use the coalition app and not submit any essays at all if you happen to be applying to a school that doesn't require the main essay. Um, and probably the best piece of news in this segment for anybody who's realizing that their student is going to have to submit the coalition application is that there is a lot of overlap between the common application essay prompts and the coalition application essay prompts. And both of them, most importantly, have a final choice of topic of your choice, submit an essay on whatever subject you prefer. The Mm -hmm. main big fundamental difference is that the Common App has a very clear word limit that all schools use for their main essay. It's 650 words. Every single school uses that word limit. The coalition app, however, has no set word limit across the schools for main essays. So at one school, your main essay could be limited to 500 words. At another school, it could be limited to 650 words, which I think is a design flaw, but nobody has asked my opinion on that. (laughs) But it is a really fundamental difference that you need to have in the back of your mind, maybe even the front of your mind as you're going through the process of working on the coalition app main essay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've generally recommended to students that they um, stick to the 650 word limit unless they really need extra space. And even then I say 750 is really probably the longest that just about any essay should be. Like, I really have trouble thinking of a student who can't say everything they need to say in 750 words. I totally agree with you. Um, What is hard, though, is for some students getting down to 500 words. And I know that some schools are limiting that mean essay to 500 words. So it's just something to be really wary of and cognizant of as you're going into essay writing season with the culture. Oh, yeah. 
God, I forgot about that. I was just thinking about, you know, some schools really being loosey-goosey with the limits, but I forgot about the 500 words. That's torture. Yeah, that is too short. That is too short. I would totally agree. All right. So um, I think our last question, what about their school-specific supplements? Um, You know, my sense is that they do still have them. So um, any, any comments on those or observations on those? Yes. They absolutely do still have them. That's another similarity between the Common App and the Coalition App, that the member institutions using the Coalition application platform can request or require that students submit school-specific supplements uh, as part of their application process. Um, A couple of weeks ago, actually about a month ago, the Coalition promised that their support team would have a list of all essay questions that are school-specific available. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm really hopeful that that's something that they will come out with. And if they do come out with it, um, I know that we'll update our Facebook page um, so that families can find it. Um, But it is, as I said earlier, one of the biggest kind of overarching challenges with the coalition app is not being able to see those school specific supplemental questions very easily, but they are there. And you made a good point, Sally, that they could be easy to overlook. So it's really important to pay close attention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I really don't understand why they set up their platform like this. I mean, every student I have worked with really likes to be able to kind of you know, work on the essays at very separate times, like they'll work on the essay and then they'll like plug away at the common app and then they'll work on their essay. And so the fact that the coalition application doesn't allow that just seems kind of ridiculous to me. But as you said, no one's asking us. That's right. I do, I do want to end on a positive note though, which is that I think since the coalition launched in 2015, we've been through this will be the third full application cycle with it. They've made really big improvements each year. So I'm hopeful that this is something they will change quickly or in the next cycle because mm-hmm. they have been pretty responsive to feedback. Okay. And I'm glad but that you said that. it's not helpful for this year's seniors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> or, or the people trying to help them. <laughs> so, right. Um, for us. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Not that it's about us, because it clearly isn't. But um, all right. Well, that is, I'm really glad you did end on a positive note, too, because I also know that, you know, the coalition app is new to me. So I think that, you know, I'm I'm prone to being a little more negative about it. So, um, so thank you for that, Abigail. Um, all right. And of thank course. you in general. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely. I hope you have a great end to this show. I know you have a fabulous guest coming up. (laughs) Thank you. All right. We're going to take a short break, everyone. And then when we get back, Zaragoza Guerra and I will be discussing study abroad programs. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions. 
about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. In this segment, Zaragoza Guerra and I will be discussing study abroad programs. Welcome, Zaragoza. Hola, Sally. <laughs> Hola. <laughs> All right. So, um, Zaragoza, I think people know what study abroad is in a general way, but what they might not realize is all the different kinds of study abroad. So I think the first thing that a student should do is understand those different kinds so they can identify what they Mm -hmm. want. So I was hoping you could kind of talk about what some of the different options are. Yeah, Sally, I don't think there is any cooker cuddle cutter, uh, cookie model for study abroad. Um, you know, there are quite a, a number of different options, and students need to think what they're comfortable with, uh, think about uh, what uh, they're hoping for out of such an experience, um, because those experiences are going to vary greatly. Um, you know, first off, and, and first and foremost, foremost, they need to think about whether or not they want to uh, study another language. You know, do they want this experience to be in their native tongue? Do they want it to be in English? Or do they have uh, a desire to, to learn something uh, something else, uh, another language? Um, do they want uh, a cultural experience that is going to be very different than what they grew up with? Or uh, do they want it to be relatively similar? Um, do they want to study at a U.S. college or university, um, or do they want to study at an international university? Because that could be an option. It could be that they don't necessarily uh, enroll at a U.S. school and then spend a year abroad. Perhaps they spend their uh, whole university uh, experience in another country at an international university or at a 
U.S. university that has a campus abroad as well. And there are going to be some experiences that are full immersion experiences where they're living with a family, or they might uh, have an experience where uh, they are spending time at a U.S. school that happens to have a campus abroad, um, you know, where students can spend a semester or two abroad at that um, satellite uh, campus. Um, you know, do they want a week, a semester, a year, a summer? Um, you know, those are all uh, definitely some, some, some options. And then, you know, even for students who might be considering, let's say, STEM, you know, what, what do they want out of their experience? Because sometimes they might not necessarily be able to go abroad in the traditional sense. You know, perhaps uh, a school might provide them the opportunity to spend an internship abroad um, or a time at a, a corporation or uh, some research experience um, abroad. And, you know, I've even had some students who spent their year abroad not necessarily even within a university environment, they did it as part of a gap year, too. So there are a lot of options out there, and I think students need to think about what it is that they want, what kind of experience they want, uh, what kind of uh, languages they want to learn or not um, before they uh, you know, start talking about, hey, I want to study abroad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think your comment about um, the STEM um, opportunities for STEM students is is uh, pretty important because I've talked to a lot of students who assume they'll be able to study abroad, uh, you know, and they want to go to Florence, but they also want to be, you know, an engineering major. And so, you know, is there, can you study, are you fluent enough in Italian to study engineering in Florence, you know, as opposed to, you know, will you be able to arrange your coursework um, so that you don't have to study those science classes during your junior year. You know, they, they, they don't often think about some of the barriers that are there. And, you know, then, like, I really like it when colleges, like University of Chicago, where I used to work, we had a lot of great summer programs. So I was like, well, you can definitely do one or more, actually, of these summer programs. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think mm-hmm. that kind of a thing can sometimes argue for the gap year that you just mentioned. Yeah, exactly. You know, I did a study abroad um, when I was an undergrad, and I know that my particular major traditionally took up three years. And, you know, that freshman year I I spent in my freshman experience and my freshman core curriculum, and I needed my sophomore, junior, and senior years um, dedicated to my major. Uh, They allowed me to study abroad, but I had to really figure out how I was going to make up for some of those uh, course requirements uh, within my particular major, as well as figure out how I would have to double up on a number of classes uh, upon my return. Um, it meant, ironically, sacrificing my desire to have a, a minor in Spanish, even though I spent my time in Mexico City. Um, <laughs> but when I came back, hey, I didn't have enough time to do that. I, I had to focus in on my, my core uh, classes for, for my major. So, you know, that's not going to be all too different for, let's say, someone who's hoping to major in engineering, uh, where you're going to have some pretty uh, tough uh, core requirements, uh, requirements going in starting freshman year, and there are a lot of sequential classes that you're going to have to take. And going abroad, you might not necessarily be able to take that organic chemistry class abroad. You might not be able to take, you know, those particular 
uh, engineering classes abroad or some of those advanced math or science classes abroad, especially if you're unfamiliar with the language. Sometimes, uh, particularly with some tech schools, I, I work for MIT, and the study abroad experience was a little bit different than uh, what it was, uh, you know, at other places uh, that I I, I had researched and seen, you know, at a place like MIT, their study abroad experience is, hey, you know, you can work, you, you can intern uh, research, doing research, or uh, you, you can work for a company. And that was the experience that uh, those students received. Or sometimes it, it has to be done over the summer as well. You know, so think about those things, you know, how will this experience perhaps impact um, your undergraduate studies and, and mm-hmm. graduating on time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I worked with a um, I worked with a student who was a history major, and even for her, it was a challenge because, um, you know, there was a junior seminar class requirement, and she was going to have to take it at the end of her sophomore year, which was doable. But then she was in a class with mm-hmm. all these juniors, people who had like more advanced level of knowledge than her. I mean, she really had to be willing to take mm-hmm. on a more challenging course than she had kind of, um, you know. I mean, she was fine, but it was. It was a, you know, it was a big step up, uh, bigger step up than most of the other students were having to make in terms of the level of the curriculum. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned, you know, even a gap year could be a good experience. You know, for instance, I had a friend when I did my study abroad in Mexico City who, who came along and you know, she was uh, a, a peer at the study abroad program. You know, she did take a gap year before her freshman year. And she spent it in Brazil. And so, you know, her study abroad experience was actually a complement to a previous study abroad experience. Um, but that, you know, her first experience, as I said, was in a gap year. It wasn't necessarily formal study as part of the university. So there are probably ways that a student might be able to uh, get this experience under their belt, you know, particularly if they know their particular major uh, might inhibit such an experience. Uh, and let's say their particular school might not necessarily have some of those research opportunities uh, or, you know, traditional uh, study abroad opportunities for students who might be majoring in engineering. There's still ways uh, to go mm-hmm. about this. And it could yeah. be either a gap year. It could be a summer experience. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's you know, an incredible opportunity for students to learn about the world, to learn about their selves, themselves, to, to learn about their place in the world. And, uh, you know, you gain a lot of perspective from such an experience. Um, and it, you, you learn about uh, how, how, how insignificant your life growing up might have been compared to, you know, everything that's happening in the world. Um, you learn about uh, your relationship to uh, the rest of the world. You, you gain perspective about your life growing up and um, how it, it might not necessarily be the end-all, be-all. Um, because there are people who live quite differently. And uh, it's, it's, it's such an enlightening experience. I, I generally encourage it uh, to, to all my students. I, I really encourage it, too. And I do want to stress that, you know, another way to go abroad for a year, even if your program um, it would be challenging to do in another country, is to go to England or go to Australia or you can even go to Singapore, you know, or some of the, you know, some of the there's a lot of countries around the world where they actually, um, you know, speak English that people aren't always aware of. Hong Kong, you know, you can study in multiple different countries in English. 
um, I actually had a friend who was a theater major and that wouldn't seem to lend itself to another country, but obviously England, London is a remarkable mm-hmm. place to study theater. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's also, mm-hmm. um, you know, those kinds of focus study, study abroad, which I think is pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Like art history in Florence might be like a pretty good option, <laughs> you know, so... Yeah, absolutely. And and as I said, you know, there are some options for students to, you know, perhaps gain admission at an international university rather than a U.S. school as well. And so, and and there are going to be some countries where even though the traditional language of of the country might not necessarily be English, um, there are plenty of places where you could still study English, where they do make it a little bit easier for English-speaking students to to still um, gain uh, entry into those universities. Um, I, you know, there's a, a great publication um, that NACAC uh, puts out, um, the National Association of uh, Mission Counselors uh, puts out, and you know, it's, it's called the Guide to International University Admissions. So I would, you know, definitely recommend to students who are thinking about such an experience, maybe go to that website, macacnet.org, uh, and, and, and search for that uh, particular publication. And it'll, it'll tell you, hey, these are some of the requirements, some of the requisites uh, for getting admission to some of these universities. You know, it's, it's going to be a different experience. It's not going to be the same kind of application process that you would go through here in the States because, obviously, it's uh, for, you know, a different educational system. But um, definitely worth considering as well. And sometimes they, they make the experience um, uh, financially worthwhile, <laughs> too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, some of the, I think, what was it, Germany that said that anybody could study there internationally for free? You know, mm-hmm. like a, non-German students got the same tuition that German students got, which is to say they didn't have to pay anything, which is remarkable. So mm-hmm. what? Mm-hmm. So you've just you've just mm-hmm. named yeah. one really mm-hmm. good... Go ahead. No, yeah, I was about to say, you know, I, I've, I've had some students who um, have French backgrounds and, you know, studying in uh, Montreal or in uh, Canada, you know, they, they, they do get some of those breaks financially as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you just named a really good resource um, to kind of research these different opportunities we've been talking about, um, which is the one on NACACnet.org um, about international mm-hmm. admissions. So what are some other ways that students can research the different kinds of opportunities that might be available to them? I think, um, you know, they, they might want to take a look at the culture of study abroad at the respective campuses. How big is it? Because there are going to be some places where, hey, almost everyone from your college campus um, goes abroad. I, you know, I went to Notre Dame as an undergrad, and, uh, you know, it had an incredible uh, study abroad program. And I, I think, you know, a good chunk of my peers um, spent a year abroad or semester abroad. Um, well over the majority of, of freshmen. I think it was, I, I don't know the exact number, but for some reason, 70% comes to mind. Um, and I would, you know, tell students all the time, you know, go uh, and research how many students go abroad from a camp- campus because it might make you feel a lot more at ease with the experience knowing that, hey, this is something that everyone here does or most students here do. 
Um, and uh, it, it makes the experience a little bit easier knowing that you're not the only one. <laughs> you're not uh, the only person who's taking such an experience. A great resource for that is um, uh, the Open Doors report that um, IIE puts out. And you can find that on IIE.org. Um, and, and I would just, you know, search for their Open Doors report. And it'll tell you, uh, you know, the percentage of students, you know, the college campuses with the largest percentage of students going abroad. Um, it'll talk about actually, you know, the number of students who come from abroad to study at those campuses as well. So it gives you a sense for the international experience and the culture of, the, of that college campus and how acceptable it is to, to go abroad or not. Yeah, that sounds like a really valuable have, yeah. website. Sorry, go ahead. No, but I, I'd also say, you know, do, do some search on, you know, not just, um, as I said, uh, schools that offer that traditional study abroad program, but, you know, there are also going to be some American universities um, abroad as well. And, you know, just, you know, schools like, um, the American University of Paris or in Rome or in Cairo, uh, American Business School of Paris, um, American University of Paris, New York University has a, uh, a Florence program, uh, Franklin University, Switzerland. Um, you know, definitely take a look at uh, those schools that, that have uh, campuses abroad because you, you might be able to get the best of both worlds. You might be able to get a university, an American education, um, if that's what you're looking for. Um, but it will also give you that uh, cultural experience of, of living in a different country, too. Mm-hmm. Great. I also recommend that students, you know, if they're looking at a college, that they look at the college website itself and see which what kinds of programs are offered. Because I mean, again, students often, they say, I want to study abroad, but that's not a distinguishing factor in terms of colleges. I mean, you can go to a community college and study abroad at this point. It's very, really, almost everybody offers something. So what you want to do is dig in a little more deeply, and their website can be a really good, um, you know, resource for that. So Zaragoza, we basically have um, two minutes left. So any any other sort of tips, you know, how would you want to get started? Any other resources? Yeah, I would say get started now um, in terms of uh, thinking about your particular uh, desired experience. And if it is an experience that entails another language, going knowing that, A, you probably should be studying up while in high school and really trying to immerse yourself in that language, you're you're going to get some time to do that when you get to that college campus, but you know, there's one, you know, there's a big difference between learning what Fifi and Pierre do on the side and actually meeting them in person when you're in Paris and being able to have a really full-on conversation with them. So, you know, definitely immerse yourself in in those language opportunities because it's going to be an important part of your experience, uh, both uh, when you get abroad um, and when you are talking with your host family, if you do end up living with a host family, uh, and, you know, understanding the, the course material. So get a feel for that. I think that's important. And, and get a feel for, you know, your perspective area of study. As I said, there might be some majors that are going to be uh, a little bit more difficult to study abroad. So you might need to uh, figure out how you might be able to get that experience under your belt 
uh, perhaps through untraditional means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a, a, a great note to end on, Zaragoza. Um, so thank you for that. You're welcome. My pleasure, Sally. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, um, Zaragoza, for everyone who's listening, hopefully Zaragoza and I gave you a sense of what the challenges are, but that there is always an option. Because what we really want to say is, you know, you should definitely be doing this if you have any desire to at all. It just might take a little more planning in some of your cases. So don't leave it to the last minute. Start doing your research now. So I just want to thank Zaragoza and all my guests today. And uh, I also want to dig in and tell you about our show next week, which is going to be hosted by my colleague, Ian Fisher. He and his guests will be discussing the impact of your major on your college application, if any, um, and reporting and sending test scores. They'll also be discussing the College Scholarship Service Profile. Some of you know it as the CSS Profile. Finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find shows with varied topics, such as last week's show in which we discussed the pros and cons of early action and supplemental essays for Georgia Tech and Emory University. And if you like our show, be sure to rate us on iTunes. It takes only a moment of your time, and it's absolutely free. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.